Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Joel Selvin to discuss his book, Sly and the Family Stone, an Oral History. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm welcoming back Joel Selvin to talk about his book, Sly and the Family Stone, and Oral History. Joel, welcome back. Thanks, Nate. And so the book came out in 1998, been out of print for a while, and it's coming back out. Tell us about the new edition. It's um, beyond October. Um yeah, uh, uh, it's the same book. <laughs> uh, I, I had to append a uh, new introduction to sort of explain why the old introduction sort of leaves things up in the air. Yeah, but otherwise, I didn't want to touch it, uh, and and not that it couldn't have been edited or or buffed up or you know enhanced in some ways. But there's some things that even with their flaws are kind of perfect the way they are. And that book is, is one of those things uh, I've come to really appreciate it over the years. And, and I, I say that in all humility because there's very little of my work in it, really. It's an oral history and the, the, uh, the transcriptions are very accurate to the uh, mode of speak, the speech, you know, like I had to, uh, uh, looking over it, I was thinking, man, these verb tenses are wrong and this diction's all messed up, and, but I didn't want to touch it. It has authenticity. It is these people speaking from their hearts. And all I did was sort of like, you know, cut up the interviews and arrange them in, in um, a way so that they all told the story. And uh, there's like 40, 50 people in, in that book talking to me about what, what happened to them and, and, and their relationship with Sly Stone. And it's an epic tale, absolutely essential part of American 20th century musical history. You've got a great uh, line in the introduction that I think sums up the importance of Sly Stone. You say, he transformed soul into funk and liberated artists as diverse as Miles Davis and Stevie Wonder. He created lots of musical of the musical vision so deftly appropriated by Parliament Funkadelic, Michael Jackson, and Prince. He revoiced how harmony vocals sounded in black music, much the way Brian Wilson did in white pop. The deeply ingrained imprint he left on the music survives, even as the man and his music continue to fade into the mist of history. And this book is just a brutal roller coaster for anybody who loves Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, possibly the epitome of the optimism of the Woodstock era has hit, you know, everyday people, the starring turn in the Woodstock documentary, the interracial multi-gender band, you know, this guy epitomized the optimism of the sixties and then 
personalized the grim realities of the 70s to this day. I mean, he has paid and paid and paid uh, for his triumphs. And um, it's just it's just a brutal telling. It, it's exciting at first and then and then it takes that turn and, and gets really ugly. And I, you have another line about Sly that I think sums it up that he was a good kid who pretended he was bad and presided over his own downfall with the mad glee of a child playing with matches. How emotionally impacting was it to tell this tale? And and what were the survivors like? And I don't think there's any other term to describe them than survivors. No, they were all uh, uh, victims of trauma. And uh, they all still had scorch marks. Um, In 1995, there really uh, were uh, like almost 20 years uh, um, the, uh, removed from this whole thing, right? Because once it blew up, it blew up, and there was no getting back, and there was no more money out of it, and you had to go on and f- figure out another way to make a living. And, and so all those people were PTSD. And it's it's fascinating the process that I went through because I talked to some of the guys in the band to start out, Larry Graham and uh, uh, Greg Arico and uh, Freddie Stewart, Sly's brother, and just you know that was the place to start. And you know one of the things I asked him was you know who else should I talk to, and they all mentioned Hamp Banks, um, although. I want to say they were somewhat leery. I, I mean, Hamp was, you know, they didn't know where he was. He'd been married to Sister Rose, and he'd obviously had some very important role to play. And it took me a while to find Hamp, but I did. And it turned out that he was sort of a semi gangster out in the ghetto in San Francisco who had never really bothered to live uh, inside the law and that he'd met Sly early on in Sly's life when he was a disc jockey, about 19 years old. And Hamp was a pimp who owned a hair salon in the middle of the San Francisco Fillmore district. So they were, they were, they were this pair. And uh, when, Sly ascended to the heights that he did after the Woodstock thing. Hamp moved in and became like his amanuensis, although I think that word's a little highfalutin for what he was. But he was the guy you had to ask if you wanted to talk to Sly. Uh, Could I speak to Sly, Hamp? You know, uh, so uh, uh, Hamp, nobody ever asked Hamp about Sly Stone. And, and and he was a, an extremely candid, forceful, uh, and and in in the way that Dylan speaks of people uh, living outside the law, you must be honest. A very ethical human being, uh, and he started like not only telling me his story, which was eye-opening, but he directed me to some of his other associates that I would have never found or never been able to uh, uh, interview without his introduction. Um, people from the criminal underworld, from, you know, thugs that, that had been associated with this. Um, 
And and they had a completely different story than the people from the band had been telling me, right? And and so then I went back to the people in the band armed with all this new information in this new portrait and their stories changed. <laughs> oh yeah. You know about that. Well, yeah, there was, you know, uh, and over the course of, I don't know, I didn't, uh, six months, maybe it really, the book just came together very quickly. There were just these people that popped up to tell their story that you just, you, you had to keep your jaw shut. It was going to fall so far. I remember sitting in uh, a Las Vegas casino uh, a bar at 10 in the morning where, you know, there's really very low ebb of the whole casino energy with Kathleen Silva, the, the, the poor gal that married Sly and had his baby. Ugh. And heard that story sitting in that bar with the ting, 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 ting of uh, slot machines uh, behind me. Uh, yeah. Um, so the fact is these people, and this is typical survivors of catastrophic trauma, they develop a story. And, and, and the story is what they, they, they invest the, their their ideas in and yeah you know up until that book came out the people in the band you know that they, they like had this story about how sly came apart and they didn't talk about vicious pit bulls attacking people in the recording studio they didn't talk about like you know uh gunplay at the uh, 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 uh when larry graham was fired from the band uh, they didn't talk about the beatings. They didn't talk about the uh, angel dust. I mean, that that stuff just is missing from the account. But once it's back in, once that whole story is there, once the gangsters have their say, it really takes on Shakespearean dimensions. It absolutely does. And I want to play our first track. And there's so many key early tracks uh, from Sly Stone's pre-Sly and the Family Stone career. Th and and there's also so many phases of his career, it's really hard to pick. But I decided to go with Bobby Freeman's Come On and Swim, which was the first song that Sly Stone produced for um, Tom Donahue and Bobby Mitchell's Autumn Records. Bought his and, parents a house with it. Yeah, and, and a big influence on Sam Cooke made a big impact in the R&B world in 1963. This is Bobby Freeman, Come On and Swim. Before we get to that part, though, I want to talk a little bit about Sly's family background, because despite his fate, 
and the sort of associates he surrounded himself with at the height of his fame, he was not born to the mean streets. He was from Vallejo, California, which was a working class town, grew up in a pretty integrated situation. And the Stewarts were a very churchy family. They were uh, Pentecostals, Holiness, uh, Church of God folks. And there's a great quote you have by a guy, uh, Shelby Givens, in there that mm-hmm. – tell us about Shelby Givens and this this view that – um, Pentecostals tend to have of morality and the kind of all or nothing moral universe they inhabit. Shelby Gibbons was, uh, I think there's only one quote from that interview in the book, but it's so crucial. Shelby was, um, what I want to say was, he was someone who had a lot of education out of the same background as, as Sly, and he had looked back on it with some academic scholarship. So he could address some of the things I didn't understand about the church of God and 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 the effect it had on uh, uh, people growing up in it, uh, and and that's crucial. What what he said because it introduces the whole idea that you can actually do enough evil that God won't take you back, and that's that's an incredibly important. Um, uh, point to the, you know uh, to to the arc of this story is that here's this young man raised in the bosom of a church, uh, tightly constricted in that you know only people they knew were members of the church and all their activities were related to the church, and he yearned to be one of the bad guys, but he really didn't ever make it. You know he really stayed with the family and and. Uh, uh, walk the walk and talk the talk. Uh, and then at later on, as he becomes independent and is given access to power, and and starts to like fall from grace because he he did achieve this extraordinary uh, uh, young life of uh, of blessed life of. Uh, living in, in as, as a musician. Oh, God, the people just loved this young sly. Uh, but as he fell from grace, and there's a conversation he had with the guy that replaced Larry Graham back in the book. He says, you know, that he's done so many bad things now that God won't take him back. And well, of course, flies in the face of, like, standard Christian theology, which is, you know, that if you uh, repent your sins, God will re- redeem you. But no, apparently that's not so with these guys. They're, 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 the, you can do enough bad things that you'll be spurned forever and, and doomed. Um, critical part of the, of the whole book's, you know, underwiring. Absolutely. And there's also this fascinating notion, and you hear it from Jerry Lee Lewis and the famous tapes with Sam Phillips at the Sun Studios, that there's this belief that if you slip even a little bit from the holy standards, you might as well just go whole hog and be all day evil. I mean, you know, there's no minor sins in this theology. You're either uh, elect or you're a sinner. And if you're a sinner, might as well go all the way. And Sly certainly did. But let's let's talk about the next, the first phase of his career, and 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 that's with the Stuart Four, which is uh, his family, his his siblings, 
He was a markedly talented child. And uh, by 1958, they're putting out their own records. I was very tempted to play uh, On the Battlefield, which is a self-released gospel track that Stuart Ford put out in 1958. Um, but then he moves into San Francisco, and he becomes a DJ, and he's playing in bands. His brother has bands. And then he becomes a star DJ on KSOL. And this is a period of time when DJs actually made money and had a big impact on the musical scene. And so Young Sly's driving sports cars and is a known player on the scene long before he puts Sly and the Family Stone together. I don't think black disc jockeys made that much dough. Uh, the sports car, the XKE, uh, which uh, he had uh, spray painted in a friend's garage, uh, purple, rather than the British racing green that it came with, was a gift from Tom Donahue and Bobby Mitchell, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the KYA disc jockeys who owned Autumn Records, where Sly was the house producer. And so that's where that came from. But ah. I, I, don't know that, I don't know that R&B disc jockeys made a lot of dough. He had a nice, he, he got his parents the uh, pad uh, and had, maintained a downstairs apartment there. And he had his own apartment in what we call the Lower Hate here in San Francisco, uh, kind of a, a, a smallish bachelor pad. Uh, and that's when he started associating with Hamp. Um, he'd get off the air and meet Hamp and they, and they would, you know, swan around town together. Uh, Hamp very much older, wiser and more worldly person than this young disc jockey record producer who was definitely touched with character charisma and this incredible musicality and like uh, early hits with the Bo Brummels uh, says like a British Beatles knockoff and those guys went on to you know do something with their music but uh, the their their first records were all with this this 19 year old record producer and they just paint a picture of this incredibly enthusiastic incredibly creative just constantly positive energy guy who could play any instrument in the studio sing any part and show them exactly how this Beatles thing would go so it wasn't like he was wedded to the R&B world he was uh, in his earliest days uh, uh, you know making pop music and 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 you know white pop music to that for that effect uh, and i didn't even mention the integrated doo-wop group he was in the viscanes um which released a single yellow moon and and there's collections of sly and the viscanes as they've been posthumously rebranded um and there was a little bit of tension there because this was a yet another integrated group. Sly was the only black member. There was a Filipino member, um, but there was also two women in the group. One of whom and he was, and he was sleeping with one of them. Yeah, having an interracial that, that relationship. Made everything even more complicated because they had to keep that on the down way low. <laughs> yeah, Sly's definitely. Sly's life has always been riddled with these kind of, uh, you know, uh, adversities, controversies, and 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 dichotomies. Uh, white, black, uh, male, female, um, he, you know, he, he, he was always, in, uh, in some kind of stressful interrelationship of those things. And let's hear our next song. This is the first single that Sly and the Family Stone put out, uh, a single that got a lot of attention in the music world. A lot of you know people like Tony Bennett singled it out for praise, but got zero radio play and did nothing on the charts. This is Underdog. But they won't let you forget that you're an underdog and you got to be places 
That was Underdog, Sly and the Family Stone's first single. I got very little love. I first heard it, uh, I think, when Paris, the rapper from San Francisco, sampled it in the early 90s. And I had to go dive into the crates to go to those first couple of Sly Stone records I'd overlooked because I was rushing to stand and the greatest hits. And uh, there's a riot going on. Just a brilliant vision on that first album. And tell us about how he put that band together and what the vision was and why it was so unique for its time. Well, it was San Francisco, and uh, it was 66, 67, when this whole Fillmore, Avalon, hippie rock thing was blowing up. Uh, But, of course, at the same time, the rhythm and blues world was producing so much vital, wonderful music coming to be called soul music and out of Memphis and way beyond the, the, the Motown stuff. So here's this disc jockey who's aware of who, who plays the R and B hits of the day on their end, but he's also mixing in Dylan Beatles, Lord Buckley. He's very much influenced by what's going on around. He's un, uh, let's say he's aware of it. Right. So the original bands, you know, Sly and the stoners, that was just a regulation ghetto R&B band with some different musicians. And, you know, he showed up after the disc jockey set and, and you know, played from midnight till two and sang in the midnight hour and whatever. But in the back of his mind, there was something growing. And then that whole thing was about what Sly and the Family Stone became. It would have black guys. It would have white guys. It would have boys it would have girls it would have rock elements it would have soul elements it was like very important that the drummer be white because black drummers were kind of a cliche in a in a funny way that if there was one black guy in your band it would be the drummer and the, uh, you know, the whole thing about natural rhythm and all that. And no, he wanted a white drummer specifically. And Gregorico is a, you know, uh, uh, he fit the bill. He wasn't the greatest player. And one night in San Jose in the early days, uh, the drummer from Lee Michaels duo, uh, Frosty, sat in with the band and Frosty could really play. And there were a lot of people that night figured, well, that was it for Greg. And, you know, Frosty was perfect because he was white too. But Frosty stayed with Lee Michaels and, and Greg kept his job. So, yeah, that whole thing was kind of like, you know, dialed in. Uh, you mentioned underdog. So I I remember where I was when I first heard dance to the music on the radio. And I was aware of Sly as a disc jockey. Very definitely. Uh, he was on KDIA by then, which was the boss of the Bay. It was the, uh, the big, uh, 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 brawling black station. Casol was the, uh, uh, the underdog, the up and comer. So he was on the boss of the Bay. 
and he was had a band that played at nightclubs who advertised on the radio. So I was aware that Sly and the Family Stone was at Frenchie's in Hayward. And he's the band seems to be taking up more of his time, so he's not like all that regular on, on KDIA anymore. And it's Saturday morning, and I'm driving down the East Shore Freeway in front of Berkeley, and Sly's doing what amounts to a guest set on the radio that morning. And he plays his own new record, Dance to the Music. And I mean, I can I can tell you exactly what part of the freeway I was on. It was all impressed in my brain because it was like a door opened and an entire new world was through the that through that door. Hearing those voices, hearing that bass, hearing the whole conceptualization of the sound as it's uh, explained to you in the record. Well, I'm going to add some bottom, you know. It was just spoon-feeding you a new world, a new vision. And, and uh, after, after that introduction uh, on that Saturday morning, I was fascinated by the Sly and the Family Stone thing and sought it out as much as I could. And yeah, that's an incredible song. And it's really interesting to hear the band members talking about it because they're all pretty disparaging of it. They saw it as sort of a sellout and, and like you say, spoon feeding the audience. But I think the vision was so revolutionary. You had to do that. I mean, people, not everybody's slides stone and not everybody's going to get that vision immediately. And, um, and, and you mentioned the bass and I think Larry Graham is the most important member of the band after Sly himself. And there's an interesting anecdote. They talk about the first time they practiced. And Larry Graham was kind of the X factor because he'd been playing with his mom and doing club gigs with his mom and playing bass just because they didn't, they were lacking a, a rhythm section. And so he developed this unique slapping bass style that becomes the funk bass style, you know, all through the 70s, all into the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the 80s and 90s and new metal, massively influential style. And there's this story about the first time they practiced together and everybody in the band immediately realizes that Sly has engineered something special, that he's put a special group of people together, and that what he's telling them to do is impacting the music and making it much more than the sum of its parts. And after that first session, Larry Graham uh, steps up and says, okay, now let's vote and see who's going to be the leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wanted to take a vote. <laughs> <laughs> and how'd that work out for Larry? Well, I explained rather quickly that there was not going to be a vote. There was going to be one band leader, and he was going to be it. Um, it the, Larry, as a, someone who has a lot of self-esteem, he's a mama's boy, uh, only son of um, essentially a single mom who you know raised him in the palm of her hand. Um, she sang like Dinah Washington and played piano like Errol Garner and Del Graham. And she worked, you know, five, six nights of reading around the Bay Area. And, and when Larry was a teenager, you know, he was in, in the, in the act. Uh, so he had a lot of self-esteem, uh, but Sly was the genius and Sly was the visionary. Sly was the one with the plan. Um, and Larry was, uh, what, uh, they say, uh, ahead of his skis. And that would that would go through the whole thing because Larry started as the band became more successful. Larry started seeing himself as like 
the sex symbol of the band and as a power within the band. And that led to a really uh, unfortunate, violent confrontation. Um, And to tell you the truth, Nate, after I heard the whole story of the Cavalier Hotel, I reached out to Larry and he didn't want to talk at all. Okay. And then like sometime later, he calls me and I, I I can't tell you how difficult it was for him to get my phone number, but I know exactly how he did it. And he had to call someone that to get it, that he didn't have spoken to. And, you know, I mean, it was all like, and he calls me and he says to me that when somebody says, the Cavalier Motel, to me, I think they know something that I don't know. And I I said, Larry, are you wondering if you left Sly and the Family Stone in fear for your life uh, with good reason all these years later? And he says, yes, I am. And I said, well, you know, Hamp told me that that fellow black that you know is black had a gun in his pocket and he was looking for you. Man. Yeah. So even Larry didn't know what had happened to him and, 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 and he hadn't wanted to ask. And that story had never come out. Yeah. Scary stuff. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about the dissolution and long dragged out downfall of Sly Stone. And yeah, like I mentioned, the narrative arc of this book is really powerful. There's been a few other music stories that have a similar arc. I think Joy Division in England is the one that most comes to mind because there's a group of people that seem to come together under a lucky star and they have this incredible chemistry and there's a vision and there's a team that assembles. You know, Sly puts his band together. He meets David Kaprilik, who's the former Columbia head of A&R, now the head of Epic Records, who signs him, brings him on at Epic. They play uh, gigs in the San Francisco area, Winchester Cathedral, Wayne Manor, Losers in San Jose, Frenchies in Hayward, like you mentioned. And, you know, the first album gets a lot of respect, doesn't sell well. The second album has the hit single, does the breakthrough. The gigs immediately pick up. They They've had some stands in Las Vegas and New York where, uh, you know, they kind of got to, to tighten up and, and build a real grassroots thing. But then once they're hit single act, they're playing the big, big gigs, college campuses and start hitting that festival circuit. And, you know, by the time they hit Woodstock and everyday people goes to number one, they're on top of the world. And it's very fast that this happens in the narrative of the book. And then, Everything goes wrong. They move to Los Angeles. Um, Sly experiences this backlash, uh, this sort of black power backlash that hit the R&B world in 68, where you know there was a radio disc jockey convention where I think Jerry Wexler might have gotten hung in effigy, a number of white record executives who had been stalwarts of the rhythm and blues scene for decades fled for their lives. Uh, even Stax Records, which was not black owned yet, but black operated, had to bring in black muscle because there were so many local gangsters and and would be black power type people trying to muscle in. Jimi Hendrix, you know, 
some people say he was bullied into firing the white members of the experience and putting together an all-black band in the Band of Gypsies. And Sly's reaction to this was to call in Hamp and a guy, J.B. Brown, and build up his own muscle. And at the same time, cocaine is becoming a bigger part of the scene, and angel dust is a big part of their lives. What do you see as the pivot point where Sly turned from this incredibly positive force into something much darker. I, everybody in the book says uh, it all turns when he moved to Los Angeles and that's just at the Woodstock point. So Woodstock was this huge, incredible experience for all the members of the band. Larry Graham explained, you know, if you reach back and, 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 and find that in yourself to, do what they did at Woodstock. It's always in your bag and you can always reach back and find it again. So they were, you know, imbued with this enormous sense of power and the uh, records were selling and, and and they weren't just selling. They were, they were the the paragon of, of, of new music. So everything went South right there. He goes to Los Angeles, and I mean, I was at that Coldwater Canyon place. It was truly a, a intimidating fortress, uh, filled with huge dogs and and you know giant Rococo furniture, and and you know, way up on the hills. Um, but uh, you know, the drugs were uh, part of it, and that's also where Hamp comes back. Hamp had been away. <laughs> Uh, as he said, it wasn't something he did, but it was something that he couldn't say about something. So off he went for a couple years. And when he came back, the whole Woodstock thing was happening. And he moved into the uh, suite adjacent to Sly's, took over from little brother Freddie. And that's where now, like, JB comes in and JB and Hamp have that encounter in the uh, um, Al D. Marino's office in New York with Dickie Diamond, the New Jer- Jersey promoter who was sort of, you know, street guy and, and was trying to get, uh, he'd had a gig canceled and he was very unhappy about it. And they got into a beef in Al D. Marino's office and JP and Hamp start stuffing this guy out the 32nd floor window. Uh, you know, uh, things changed right away and it went along with the change in the drug diet. It went along in the change of the, uh, uh way things were treated. The, the, the women became chattels that sat around and knitted these, the, these hats that they all wore. Uh, Sly started deciding when he would show up at concerts, if he would show up. Uh, the band, which had been sort of a collaborative uh, gang of, of, of uh, if not equals, at least uh, associates, the band now became a backup band, and they and 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 they took step back a slice. You know, became much more of a dictatorial ruler and more capricious. They had no idea what was going on. And that's all, you know, Coldwater Canyon. By the time they move into Beverly Hills, in uh, to uh, John and Michelle Phillips' place, uh, and uh, Slide brings in the pit bull gun, 
and really starts getting nuts. Uh, you know, 24 hour, 36 hour, 72 hour recording sessions and, uh, just, uh, endless amounts of drugs and guns and money. Mm. And that is the making of, there was a riot going on. <laughs> <laughs> Which took three years. They they put out Stand in 69. Then they dropped the Thank You for Let Me Be Myself uh, again single, which goes to number one. And then nothing. A Greatest Hits package and, and no new releases until 1971, late in 71. And There's a Riot Going co- comes out. And it's well, a radically... Don't forget, don't forget in the middle of that period, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself came out as a single. And that's such an incredibly important uh, song and and statement, record. I mean, it could be the the greatest one-chord pop record ever. And at the same time, it's also a completely uh, sneering put-down of any judgment that you might have of Sly Stone uh, coming from that that place where he was in between those two albums, the stand, the humanistic, uh, positive hippie anthem stand album to the dark, dark there, the riot going on in the middle is thank you for letting me be myself again. Amazing piece. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of that song. This is uh, the Sly Stones number one from 1969. Thank you for letting me be myself again. Thank you for letting me be myself again. The 1969 number one hit from Sliding the Family Stone. And that song to me, you know, James Brown was obviously codifying funk in this period, all the way from Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. And he brings in uh, the Collins Brothers and and uh, the second JBs. And Sly is the only person who could be said to be ahead of James Brown at this point. I mean, there's stories about Barry Gordy holding up the stand album in Motown staff meetings. Um, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye credit their much of their desire to become singer songwriters in the in the same way that Bob Dylan was to Sly Stone and Larry Graham's bass plays playing is all over that song and you know uh, Norman Whitfield re- remade the Temptations uh, in the the Sly Stone mode. Uh, yeah, he was just like sweeping through the, the, the thinking and conceptualizing of music at that point. Everybody was listening to what he was doing. And, and thank you, you for letting me meet myself again. You know what that is, Nate? That's Sly Stone's Just Like a Rolling Stone. Yep, I can see that. It's, it's definitely a statement of purpose and a statement of mastery. It's just a declaration of victory, basically. You know, I am the king, recognize. And, and, as he moves to LA and the band starts to disintegrate, Jerry Erico, you know, is not entirely replaced by drum machines, but 
largely replaced by drum machines, early drum machines, way ahead of its time. But but Sly's also jamming in the studio with people like Bobby Womack and Ike Turner, and even Miles Davis uh, is popping in and out and paying very close attention to what Sly is doing. And it definitely went to his head. And when I read that he had moved into John Phillips's Bel Air mansion, it just sent a chill down my spine. I was not native to the Mamas and the Papas. They were kind of before my time. I didn't understand harmony groups. I didn't really understand the pop folk thing. And I had just gotten through a couple of books about the Mamas and the Papas and really started to understand their discography when I read your book on Sly Stone. And as soon as I heard John Phillips' name, I had just a chill go up my spine because that dude was bad news as the day is long. And when they talked about, you know, they found when they moved in the house, the Phillips hadn't even moved out really. They just ran <laughs> and they left cocaine and, and master tapes and jewelry and all this stuff in the house, including these weird little occult closets that were painted red and, and really freaked out Sly and the, and the gang, but not, not so much that he moved. And, uh, you know, there were, peacocks everywhere and baboons and gun the pit bull who's not a fully developed dog i mean he's you know there's a story about him chasing his tail to the point where they have to take him to the vet and have his tail removed and that doesn't stop it you know and it's just a scary weird decadent scene um some of the heaviest stuff going on i mean it's like he he personalized the backlash of Altamont and the Manson family and, and the COINTELPRO and the Chicago riots and everything right. just took on all the burdens of, of the early 70s and that turn to darkness of that period. And it's, I don't know, it's just overwhelming to me. And it's amazing that there weren't more casualties. I mean, how was there not a Brian Jones of Sly and the Family Stone? Yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, God loves a drunk, I guess, but uh, they're all casualties. They just didn't die. Yeah, that's the truth. Uh, the, by the time they were done, everybody was traumatized. Now, the part you're talking about where Bel Air is happening, that's when Greg Arico has enough and bails. He's not really much on the record anyway. We sat down in my basement record library, Greg and I, and played the entire Riot album to see where his, if he could find any of his drumming on it. And we found a little, uh, especially on the, the extended version of Thank You for Let Me Be Myself. Um, but mostly it's Sly playing drums or, as you say, the Ace Rhythm King. Um, really weird. I mean, the, the, everybody knows that record for Family Affair, and Family Affair is Sly. Billy Preston and Rose. There's nobody else on that record. Uh, it, it, it is a, yeah, just they were just floating off into the into the in this zone. And of course, after that, there's only really moments where Sly is truly effective as a musician, uh, and it, it, the whole thing unravels pretty quickly. Um, to that Radio City Music Hall gig, which is the last performance by the original band. I could not bear to go any further than that because it just gets really grim and ugly. And uh, I think I used the word Dostoevsky in the book. 
<laughs> I think that's a, a fitting way to put it. And one of the people we haven't talked about that much is David Kaepernick, who was a I made love man. David Kaepernick, I loved him. We became such close friends, and, and was, I could. Couldn't go to Hawaii without visiting with him and spending time. He was magic. He died a couple of years ago at age 93, having lived an incredibly productive, wonderful, happy life long after the Sly Stone debacle. And the last thing he did was he posted a photograph of himself on Facebook wearing a tie dyed caftan, laughing his ass off with his hand on his casket. <laughs> that's awesome i'm glad to hear that he turned things around because you know he he's enters this story as a made man in the record business who signs sly and then becomes personally involved with him becomes his manager not just his his uh label head and a and r guy and then gets so tied to sly that he joins him on the descent and gets way into drugs and, and loses the plot. And they have to bring totally, in this, yeah. this guy, Ken he Roberts. He fell in love with Sly in, in, in a very uh, self-destructive way. Uh, he was a celibate gay man uh, who entered into just some incredibly uh, 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 overwhelming emotional territory with this Sly Stone deal. And yeah, ruined himself. Suicide attempts, drastic cocaine addiction. And he blew out of Sly and the Family Stone to the Hawaiian Islands where he spent the rest of his life literally growing uh, orchids and, 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 and onions and selling them. And, uh, you're right. And David, what a, what a, uh, you talk about a made man. I mean, he was Betty Davis's date for the opening of My Fair Lady. Wow. Uh, he signed to uh, Columbia Records, Barbara Streisand, Andy Williams, uh, m- many others. Uh, that uh, he, he was running that thing. He he was uh, Goddard Lieberson's right hand man. Goddard Lieberson was the president of Columbia Records, and when there was an unpleasant job that Goddard didn't want, David did it. For instance, eighty-year-old uh, Irving Berlin was going to pitch his last Broadway musical to Goddard for a soundtrack, and Goddard knew he was going to turn it down. So David did the audition. Imagine auditioning Irving Berlin. Holy cow. (laughs) (laughs) And having to shoot him down. (laughs) Uh, That's brutal. Let's hear our last song. And it's it's hard to pick. I was torn between something from um, There's a Riot Going On, but I decided to go with... uh, a single from Fresh, which is Sly's last album that I think is worthy to be in the canon. He he he, he yeah. continued to put albums out after that, but Fresh is the last one I think that you know it's not going to reach the absolute pinnacles that Sly had reached before, but it, it's a very interesting album full of brilliant work and way ahead of its time. This is If You Want Me to Stay. Smile, Calvin, please, I'm gone, forget. 
That was If You Want Me to Stay, a single from the Fresh album 1974, which was kind of Sly's first comeback of uh, many, many uh, uh, comeback attempts. And we talked about David Kaepernick and how he kind of destroyed himself trying to help Sly, a very kind of Brian Epstein figure in this story. But then he's sort of replaced by this guy, Ken Roberts, who comes out of the Four Seasons world. And <laughs> Ken Roberts, Ken Roberts was a power guy. A white power guy. When I, when I met him, he was uh, living in Mandeville Canyon in a ranch, which is like you know twenty minutes from Beverly, you know, ten minutes from Beverly Hills. And he had this plastic horse in the front yard. And his office, he, he did the interview sitting at his desk, and there were four photos behind him on a shelf of Ken with. Clinton, Ken with Bush, Ken with Reagan, and Ken with Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I mentioned that I'd been up to uh, his Mandeville Canyon and and mentioned the plastic horse to Rachel Donahue, Tom Donahue's widow. And she said, yeah, uh, last time I was up there, I told him it looked like old Pete needed a new coat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he was a no BS businessman who saw in Sly the opportunity to make a few bucks as long as he could keep Sly between the gutters. And somehow he managed to. Sly was really hurting for bucks. He had no emotional attachment with Ken Friedman. The David Capulet thing had spiraled down to being more annoying and difficult and complicated than Sly wanted to deal with. But unfortunately, there was a lot of money owed to Capulet and a lot of contractual obligations. So Ken Roberts sort of came in and cut the Gordian knot and got Sly to actually show up for gigs because he needed the dough and uh, just, you know, handled him like a baby, essentially. Uh, that was short period, short period of time, but it did manage to like sort of pay off David and get Sly back, uh, semi solvent and, you know, playing gigs again. Yeah. And the, the passages with Ken Roberts talking, the logistical challenge he would get into, I mean, it's story after story of, Sly holed up in the bathroom with his pipe, Sly disappearing halfway down the stairs to the helicopters, you know, having to convey, you know, a a trip from New York to Philadelphia that should have been handled with six limos instead becomes five helicopters at the last minute. But Roberts is able to pull this (laughs) off. You know, he pulls off the Madison Square Garden wedding of Sly Stone um, and, you know, show after show. But then there's still this negative momentum and things like this Los Angeles Coliseum show where Stevie Wonder ends up blowing him off the stage and, and Sly's goons kind of turn on his engineers and his sound guys who become, yeah, they, they beat the road crew up that night. They beat the road crew within an inch of their lives. Uh, they kidnap one of them's girlfriend. Uh, the, this is, you know, PCP days and, and, uh, you know, the beat them with, with canes, like, uh, they, they, they've been very influenced by clockwork orange, which was a current movie. 
And then they're real thugs. And, and they came in, they just burst into the road crew's hotel room and started pounding on them because Sly had blamed them for uh, the uh, equipment failures of the uh, gig that day. But actually, you know, they just got their ass handed to them by, you know, 22 year old Stevie Wonder got rolled over by a force of nature. And, uh, yeah, Moose disappeared that day, never came back. Uh, I mean, you just can't beat your road crew up. That just, you know, destroys any kind of camaraderie that you have. But it was uh, getting dark, and there was these, uh, you know, black gangster types that were associated, not just Hamp and JB and Black and, you know, Eddie Chin and all those guys, man. They were were scary guys. Yeah, and there's a story in there when they mention getting into a fight with Three Dog Night, and then the guy corrects himself. It was more like assault and battery than a fight. <laughs> <That's> just... <laughs> well, I, you know, those guys, those older black gangsters that I interviewed, man, they have no um, compunction. They're, they're they're candid and and straightforward, and it's just it's it, they're magnificent in their own way. Like Eddie Chin, you know, obviously thought Sly was an idiot and had nothing but disrespect for him and then talks about beating him up and he says yeah I slapped the taste out of his mouth Eddie was a little bit difficult to understand he was very voluble and had a high pitched voice and he's trying to tell me who he is and, and what he's involved in and so I'm like slowly putting it together and I says oh Eddie you were involved in the beating of Moose and the road crew and Eddie Eddie looks indignant and he says, Involved? That was my party. <laughs> God. <laughs> and we laugh, but it's it's heartbreaking. Awful stuff. It's the downfall of, you know, one of the great American musical geniuses who envisioned and then realized this incredible vision of of integration and and sexual equality and freedom and positivity and optimism and then turned around and just defiled it for decades. So we, we might presume that there was a certain kind of venality behind the design and not the humanistic impulses that you impugn. Okay. I think that's the case. I think Sly was someone who sort of designed this thing as a commercial entity and of course, of course, it took incredible vision to see that as a commercial entity. You had to see ahead of the world because at that point, that was all barrier-breaking stuff. But I don't think like Sly was the humanistic person that David Kaepernick believed him to be. I believe Sly was always a hidden agenda guy who wanted to succeed and wanted to uh, control his environment, much like his parents controlled his environment growing up. And ended up paying quite a heavy price for that venality. And you, you stopped the, the book at that disastrous Radio City Music Hall show in 1975. Any quick updates on Sly and, and how he's done in the decades since you want to drop before we wrap? Oh, it's so insane. You know, he was a fugitive from justice for three years, living under an assumed name before the FBI arrested him. And it was he, he ran on, he ran out on a on a um, warrant in Los Angeles on a on a drug charge that would have gotten him a slap on the wrist. 
But as a result, he ended up spending a year inside before he came out. And that was just about the time that they put him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because uh, all the band members showed up at that event to be inducted, and they did not expect Sly to be there. And he was there. He blew their minds. They hadn't seen him in years and years and years. And, of course, by then he'd become involved in a manager who, uh, in order to create a dodge against IRS tax liens, had Sly sign over 100% of his royalties to him, that would come to be a problem later in Sly's life and the result of a lawsuit that I believe is still under appeal. He won one part and then lost an appeal. Uh, And, you know, he came back and did that Grammy show. That was a disaster. He walked off the stage in the middle of the medley. Uh, He did a few gigs at one point seems to have reemerged with some sort of physical uh, abnormality uh, in a probably politically incorrect to call it a hunchback, but that's what it is. Um, And, you know, uh, just unable to get out of that loop of addiction and and degradation. But so at some point, these lawyers that are um, promoting this lawsuit reach out to me. And they and they tell me they've got Sly in a 90-day rehab program, and they're looking to create a project after he gets out of rehab that'll get him some money and keep him his attention. And they're thinking a book is a good thing. And would I be interested in working with Sly on his book? I said, sure. So they set up some phone call with Sly. And we talked for a little while. He wanted to know if he could make $90,000 because he wanted to buy a uh, recreational vehicle. Of course, $90,000 is, you know, like a modest price for an RV. Uh, You know, my friend Steve Miller has a half a million dollar one. So, uh, yes, you know, sure, 90 grand, sure, we could make that. Then he starts asking about how the payout works. Like, when do you get the money and when do you do the work? Right. And I explained to him that you get a little in front, you get a little when you finish your manuscript and you get the rest when the book comes out. And that really bothered him. You could tell. And he asked me to walk him through it a second time. And my feeling was that he wanted to get paid. He didn't want to do the work. But we ended up, you know, agreeing to talk more later and never heard back from those lawyers. But about two weeks later, I get a call from Sly himself. Now, I don't know how. He got my number or how he worked it out. But all he wanted to do was he wanted me to walk him through the payout thing again. He wasn't clear on how the payout worked. So it was obvious to me that he was just scheming to like, you know, there was no real book in him. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, all so hilarious. And I mentioned this to Greg Arico uh, and, and Greg said, oh, yeah, yeah. I've had those postcards from the future, too. (laughs) wow (laughs) and what a note to end on um sly stone and postcards from the future my guest has been joel selvin the book is sly and the family stone and oral history which is being re-released in october of 2022 joel thanks so much for having you on i can't wait to have you back to talk about altamont you had another dark and disturbing Nate, I, i sure appreciate your uh um your interest in my work and and it's always a pleasure to speak with you it's a treat thanks joel
Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Garrett Cash for another installment of Holy Roll, focused on early 20th century gospel composers. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.